Amen. Is, um, you know, the, the battle is, is won in your spirit. Like, it's game. If you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's game over concerning who you are in Christ and your righteousness. Um, but the battlefield is right here, okay? And so, periodically, you know, the, the, and the primary forms of attack are your emotions and your thoughts. Those two things. And when your emotions are going crazy, when your thoughts are going crazy, you have to understand that that's, that's not all... It's not always you. It's the enemy. And uh, those are, those are the, the, there's still a battleground in the emotional realm and the thought realm, what we would call the soul realm. And, you know, your thinker, your feeler, and your chooser. The enemy has no right to your spirit, but he can try to attack you, your thoughts and try to attack your emotions. And it's during that period of time that you need truth. Okay. Because the, beauty th- the beautiful thing about truth is truth doesn't change according to the way you feel. Truth is the same. Truth is a solid rock. Now, that rock can be a foundation uh, to help you, to help you take a stand. And, and how many know there are times when, when you can hear some truth that you didn't really feel like hearing, but it's still true? Uh, what are you talking about, Jeremiah? How I many you know if I if I try to run past this chair, and I hit my shin on this chair, <laughs> you know what's true is this chair's not moving, but my shin is going to move. But when my, when I make contact with that chair, the reality of that chair and the strength of that chair is made known to my shin. If that makes sense. And so. But, but, you know, we live in a culture where people are really trying to kind of muddy the waters about what's right and wrong and what's true and what's not true. But in the midst of an emotional storm, in the midst of a thought storm, you need truth. And you get truth from Scripture. You need what is written. You know, when Jesus fought the enemy, he didn't fight the enemy in, in you know, 40 days out in the wilderness. He didn't fight the enemy with the way he felt. Um, he didn't fight the enemy uh, with, with logic or reason. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And there's tremendous power um, in truth. And so when, when you're going, th- once again, when you, and, and sometimes you may feel weird and just understand it's not you. It's the enemy. Enemy's hitting you. There's an attack, you know. Um, when you're getting them crazy thoughts, it's not you, it's an attack, and it's time to grab on to the truth that you know. It's not time for logic, it's not time for reason. You know, um, pilots, when they fly, they have two ways of flying. They have sight flying, where they look through the window and they just fly according to what they see, and th- then they also have uh, instrument flying, and they use the instrument flying in the clouds, in the rain, when they can't see, and the instrument flying is actually more accurate than the sight flying. Because the instruments are more accurate than the human eye. How many of the human eye can, can think it sees something that it doesn't? And there are times in your life when you're going through a battle, you're going through a storm, when you've got to do some instrument flying. And I'm talking about Scripture. I'm talking about holding fast to what is true. You know? What are you talking about? I'm talking about when you know that you're the righteousness of God. You know, you may not feel righteous, but you declare that you're the righteousness of God. And all those other, all those other realms of truth, it is... You have to understand there's going to be a battle, and there's going to be a fight, amen? And there are certain times the enemy tries to hit, and, and during those times, we've got to hold fast to truth, amen? 
And I just want to encourage everybody in that because there are times when you feel funny or when you're trying to think funny, but let truth determine it. One of the things that we, we do in our house, or we don't do it, Eli does it, um, we, uh, we <laughs> one of the things, I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but we like, how do I, when Eli says it is true, can you give me an example of that? Like for Eli, like we can be, we can be talking to Eli about something. It's the end of all argument. Because <laughs> it's true. And he says like that, because it's true. And it's like the end of all argument, because it's true. <laughs> and of course, the context that he uses it is in isn't always right. But for us, how I many you know we got this book and we know what's true, and it's the end of all argument with our emotions. It's the end of all argument with what we're dealing with. Amen. And I'm telling you right now, it's an anchor and it's a help in time of need. Amen. Because it's true. Amen. So, anyway, I just that was on my heart and I wanted to share that with you. But I'm super excited about today's message, and uh, we just started kind of going down a path last week and um, just addressing some things, and then Grant is going to finish it out. Uh, today, and we're excited about it. So, Mr. Fraley, come on up. Let's give it up for Grant. We love him. We appreciate him. Amen. Come on up, brother. Give us a word. Thank you, sir. Uh, we spent the evening with Jeremiah and Stacy yesterday, and Jeremiah made me some sort of cup of coffee yesterday evening, and I've still not been to sleep. So, uh, no, no, listen, seriously, on the way there, we got to my sister's house, and I was like, I'm so fired up. <laughs> And, and, and Keisha's like, Keisha's like, gotta calm it down. Yeah. <laughs> oh. All right, guys, we're we're gonna get started in Hebrews chapter nine, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Um, let's see here. Um, there are two truths that universalists and inclusionists consistently and constantly attack. And when I'm using the terms uh, universalist, inclusionist, um, you know, we were having this discussion yesterday evening. It's like communism and socialism. They're saying the exact same thing. It's like, let's just try this word and maybe people won't catch on to it as easy. Um, but So we can just say universalism. But there's two truths that they consistently and constantly attack. And one is the scriptures or the word of God. And the other one is the blood and the need for a blood sacrifice, the blood of Jesus and these two truths come together in one word, covenant. Covenant is the word of God and the blood of God come together. And so that's, that's the angle I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to come at this this morning. We're, we're going to talk about covenant. And so let's read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. And I talked about this uh, some last week towards the end of the message. But uh, let's just pick up there. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, remember that, and all the people saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Who did the commanding? God. God's the one who commanded the blood for the covenant. 
Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. And I just want to say this. The reason these truths are attacked, the reason the scriptures are attacked, the reason the blood is attacked, is because they go together. You can't separate them. And, uh, and, and so this, this word here, where it talks about in Hebrews chapter 9, it says the book itself. That word book is the Greek word biblion. And it's where we get our English word Bible. That's what Bible means, book. That, that's simply all it means. So when we say the Bible, we're saying the book. This is the book above all books. So it's the book. So it's interesting here that, that the, the author of Hebrews said that not only were the people sprinkled with blood, but the book or the Bible itself was sprinkled with blood. And if, and if you don't realize, um, you know, when we talk about the blood, because I think we've cheapened it, um, you know, the, the blood can't be cheapened, but I, I just mean through uh, the way we express it, the way we try to keep quiet about it. Um, you, you would think that the blood isn't mentioned a lot in the Bible. But listen to this. The word salvation, and this is referring to the King James Version, the word salvation is mentioned 164 times in the Bible. The word grace is mentioned 170 times in the Bible. The word faith is mentioned 247 times. The word love, 310 times. And the word blood, 447 times. So much more than the word salvation, grace, faith, and love, things that we all focus on in our modern church. And all these things need focus. I'm not doing away with that. But the blood is mentioned far more than these other things. The closest that comes to it is, is love. And, and the way I, I explain it to people, and I mentioned it last week, if you were to take your Bible and you were to take a red highlighter or a red marker or, or crayon or something, and if every time you found the word blood, you marked it red, you highlighted it red, you circled it red, if then you took and flipped through the book itself, it would look as if it had been sprinkled with blood. So our Bible, it's as if it has literally been sprinkled with blood. So, I mean, because here's the thing, guys. All of these truths, salvation, grace, faith, and love, they're meaningless without blood. Our salvation was secured by the blood. Um, grace was the very act of God shedding His blood. Right? Our faith is in the blood. And, and God's love was manifested toward us through the shedding of blood. So all of these things that we focus on fall apart if we lose the foundation of blood. And so the, the reason I like to come at this as, at the angle of covenant, because those who attack this teaching often come at it like, well, you know, how wrong of God to need blood. And it does seem why, you know, there's this question why, but when you understand covenant, that disappears. It's the closest we can, like I said last week, there is this mystery to why blood. But the closest we can get to understanding why is to understand covenant. And this is much more than, you know, we've preached a lot here, other people have preached here, on the differences between the old covenant and new covenant. We need that. That's great. But I'm just referring to a covenant itself. 
it, it, it's from, the, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. This book is literally a book of covenant. And if it's a book of covenant, you're going to find out it has to be a book of blood. So, because um, here's the thing. You can't find one, I challenge you, find one major character in the Bible, major character, uh, if, you, if you go to the Old Testament and you find uh, someone like Abraham, Moses, uh, David, you know, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these guys, every single one of these at some point either offered a blood sacrifice or they spoke about blood. In the New Testament, every single author, whether you know, which I know Jesus didn't author anything, but you, you look at Jesus and then you look at the authors like Paul, Peter, James, and John, they all at some point talk about blood. You can't find one major person in the Bible who does not address the issue of blood. All right? So have you ever noticed, we're going to go to this now. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 24, begin with verse 3. But have you ever noticed how confident these people under the Old Testament, or under the Old Covenant, have you ever noticed how confident they seemed in God? Right? And 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 it can be kind of odd because... You know, we know, looking through the lens of the New Testament, that the covenant they were under was nowhere near as good as this covenant that we were under. We know that there was, there was um, guilt and condemnation and shame that came with that covenant because of their inability to keep it. But many times, it seems, those people in the Old Testament uh, did better with faith than we do under the New Covenant. And so, why is that? You know, I used to wonder that. What was their confidence? What was it that made them so sure of the will of God? So sure uh, of who He is? Look look here, Exodus chapter 24, and we're going to begin with verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. So this is immediately after uh, God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Then, he, notice this, then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And then I want to read real quick Second Kings chapter 23 verses 1 through 3. Very familiar, it's very similar. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with, all, with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. Here it is. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people, I love this, all the people took a stand for the covenant. I love that because there, there, some older versions seem to say they stood up while the covenant was read. But I really like who, how the New King James says this, they took a stand for the covenant. The idea is 
that they, they stood up to anything that tried to come against the truth of that covenant. So here's what I'm saying, though. The reason the Jews under the Old Testament seemed to, to be confident in their faith more than us uh, at times is because they viewed their scriptures as the book of the covenant. And even though the Bible is a book of covenant, I would argue with you, because listen, Old Testament, New Testament. The word testament, covenant, will, you can, you can use those interchangeably. They mean the same thing. And, and even though we know that not all the Old Testament is Old Covenant, Old Covenant, and not all the New Testament is New Covenant, I'm just making a point that our Bible itself, when you open it, is divided into covenants. So it is a book of covenants. But as I've really been studying this subject over the last year, I've come to find that this is really the book of one covenant. And, let, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that in a minute because what I mean is the Bible is full of many covenants, but they all find their fulfillment and they all point to this one covenant. Okay? So look here. Let's read this in Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 20 and 21. And this, uh, this will bring that, that thought out, what I'm, what I'm speaking here. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So the book of Hebrews has really just expounded upon the blood of the old covenant compared to the blood of the new covenant. But here he doesn't use the word old or new. He uses the word everlasting. He says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, this word everlasting, I can't say the word in Greek, but it's referring to, listen to this, it's referring to that which is without beginning or end. That which has always been and will always be. So now this is interesting because the scriptures plainly teach us here in Hebrews. This is where we understand that the new covenant actually began with the death of Jesus, not the birth of Jesus. But here at the end of the book, the author says this covenant really doesn't have a beginning or end. It's really what has always been and will always be. So that seems like a contradiction but the, what it is, is this new covenant has always been what was in the heart of God. This new covenant has always been His plan from the foundation of the world. Before you or I were a thought in His mind, He created this plan that included this new covenant. So when He created the old covenant, when, when He created, when He made a covenant with Adam, when He made a covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses and David, and we could go on. When he made these covenants, in his heart and his mind was the new covenant. He made these covenants to get people closer to this one glorious new covenant. So even though in, in the sense of time, this covenant had a beginning, outside of time where God dwells, there was no beginning. And when we step outside of time and we're in eternity a million years from now, guess what? We're still going to be under the new covenant because there's going to be no end to it. A billion, trillion years from now, guess what covenant we're going to be under? The new covenant because it's the everlasting covenant. So 
when I say that, so that's how I say that we can call this book the book of the covenant, the new covenant, all right? So that doesn't mean it's all for us, right? It doesn't mean that, you know, when we read things in the law, the, the, the ceremonies and things like that, we understand we're mature enough to understand that, that it doesn't mean we're under that, that we're still under that covenant. But we realize that it points us to something better. It points us to something everlasting. Because every covenant has been temporary, but we are now under the one covenant that is eternal. Right? So, let's look here. Uh, go with me to Hebrews chapter... Actually, you go to Ephesians 2 chapter 11. I, I'm going to read something real quick. I want to just take a few minutes and first let's discuss why is it dangerous uh, to to heed to you know to hear to um, believe that this teaching that rejects the blood of Jesus or you know and some of them, you know they may say well I don't reject the blood of Jesus but they try to do away with the sacrifices and and if you if you do away with the thing that point if you do away with the shadow you automatically do away with the substance. Right, so so listen here. Let's look at what this what the danger is in what universalists teach. Uh, I'm going to read this real quick. You stay in Ephesians chapter two. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy. And I, I feel like every time I, I, I use this verse here, I never uh, use it in the context to explain actually what it's saying. But I just want to make a point of this. Anyone who has rejected Moses's law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Listen to this. Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Now, listen. How do you make something common? You say there's really nothing special about it. And there's a lot of teaching out there that says, well, blood sacrifices were just... What, what happened was these other cultures used blood sacrifices, so God said, okay, I'll let you guys do it too. And you know what that's doing? That's making the blood a common thing. So he says, kind of the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and listen what it does. It insults the spirit of grace. So you can't be claiming that you're preaching and teaching grace and in the same breath saying that the blood was something that's common. Okay? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, a lot, you know, legalism will really use this verse and say, Hey, you know, you better not sin. You know, if you, if you sin, God's going to get you. But in context... The author of Hebrews is talking about those who would teach and say the blood is a common thing and say there's nothing special about it. In, in, in a sense, he's saying these people do away with the blood of Jesus. They literally, he, he compared it to them trampling it under their feet, walking all over it, making a mess of it. All right, so, so what did he say here? He said when it comes to those people, there's some sort of punishment. All right, and there, there can be a mystery there, but I, I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm not going to get into the context of that. I think we've, all, we've, we've taught on that plenty of times here, but it just shows you the danger in this teaching. Okay? Uh, let, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And I think this one is the one that really shows you the danger in that teaching. 
Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, now the uncircumcision is Gentiles, circumcision is Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, listen to this, and strangers from the covenants of promise, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So here is the the ultimate, to me, danger in rejecting the necessity of blood. The word strangers is the Greek word xenos, and it's referring to those who don't have a share in something. So he's literally saying you you did not have a share in the covenants of promise. So this is, and as a result of that, you had no hope and you had no God. So let's put this together. Here's what Paul's saying. If you don't have blood, you don't have a covenant. And if you don't have a covenant, you don't have a God. If you don't have blood, you don't have a covenant. And if you don't have a covenant, you don't have any hope. What is hope? A confident expectation of good. Right? So if you do away with the blood of Jesus, you do away with your God. You can't claim to have God and reject the blood. You can't claim, you you can't reject the idea of this book being about covenants and then say, I've got God. Because according to this, without blood, there is no covenant. Without a covenant, there is no God. Okay? So let's look at this, and let's look at what the word, what is a covenant. So let, let's just look at this real quick. The word covenant comes from the he, Hebrew word bereth, and it is literally referring to something that is made by cutting. And so this is important because a lot of times we compare it to a contract, a covenant. That's the closest thing we have in this world to compare it to, right? And, and I mean in our culture, in our in our. Western culture, the closest thing we have to compare a covenant to is a contract. But, but that's still a bad illustration because here's the thing. A covenant is not made like a contract. A covenant is cut. Okay, so the very fact that a covenant has to be cut tells us there has to be a shedding of blood. And if there is no shedding of blood, then there is no covenant. All right? So blood is always a requirement for covenant. Always. Just like a contract has to be signed. A contract is signed with ink. A covenant is signed with blood. All right? So listen to this. Here are some traditions, and I don't have time to go into them, but this is one of the funnest things I've found when when I've been really studying on this, and I'm still studying on it and seeing things. But here are some traditions which have their origin in the blood covenant. Um, Waving. That came from the blood covenant. Handshaking. We shake hands. That came from the blood covenant. Because people that would go into covenant with one another, they would make a a cut on on the palm of their hands and they would shake hands and it would intermingle their blood. So that's where handshaking originated. So when people would shake hands, they, they would do so with their blood covenant friends. All right? Um, here's, here's a fun one. 
you know the wedding tradition after a wedding when the, when the groom and the bride, they, they stuff cake in each other's face, they feed one another, originated with the blood covenant. Like communion, but originally, because communion just comes from covenant, it's the same idea, but originally, you know, thousands of years ago, when they would make a covenant, they would feed one another. So that's where that came from. And then one more, uh, wedding rings. Wedding rings, if you wear a wedding ring, that found its origin in the blood covenant. Because that culture believed that, that somehow like the vein that ran through this finger went directly to the heart. And so that, that's just kind of, they, they, they connected it to a blood covenant. All right? So in the Greek, let's look at the, so that's the Hebrew. In the Greek, the word translated as covenant is, and I may be butchering this, diatheki. It's referring generally of a formal arrangement or agreement for disposing of something in a manner assuring continuity. So, the clo- so like I said, the closest thing we have to a covenant in our Western culture is a contract. But there's, there's, this, big, there's this big difference. All right, there, for a contract, it can end when the obligations are fulfilled. A covenant, a blood covenant, when you enter a covenant by blood, you are literally saying, this will not end till one of us dies. But here's the thing. Most of the time, it went beyond death. And we're, we're going to see that a little bit later with the story of David and Jonathan. But here's what's powerful about our new covenant. It goes until one of us dies, and the one who's enforcing it, Jesus, how many knows he's already died, and guess what he did? He came back to life. And the Bible says death has no more dominion over him. He's going to die no more. So, so the one who enforces the covenant is never going to die. All right. So let's look at really quick. I just want to get into this before we get into some more details about covenant. Let's look at the power of covenant. Because it's the most powerful thing that I've discovered in this book. The power of covenant. If you find yourself, remember what I said about the people in the Old Testament. It seemed like they did not struggle with faith like many times we do, like many times like I do, right? You know, you go to the Psalms, like, okay, this dude was under an, uh, an inferior covenant, and he just had this confidence in God that sometimes I find myself lacking, right? And it's because, and we know David, who wrote most of the Psalms, he was a man of covenant. When he went to battle Goliath, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He was using covenant language. He was saying, this man doesn't have a covenant with God. I don't care how big he is. He doesn't have a covenant, and you're running from him. That doesn't make sense. All right, so, so here's what, what I want you to know. If you struggle with faith, you probably struggle with, a, with a, a lack of understanding of covenant. And let me explain that. Faith is not transactional. Right? A lot of the faith movement has made faith transactional. All right, here's my faith. Now you give me my healing. Here's my faith, now you give me my prosperity. Here's my faith, now you give me my peace. Here's my faith, now you give me you know, freedom from depression. Um, it's became transactional. Biblical faith is not transactional. Biblical faith is covenantal. All right, Because when you're in covenant with someone, you are trusting that they are going to fulfill their obligation. That they are going to do their end of the agreement that you have made. All right, look at this. Psalm 89, verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Covenant is the faith stabilizer. 
Because if I find out he promised it to me in this book of the covenant, and he said that I will not alter that word, I will fulfill that word, then how can my faith be anything but rock solid in him? Okay? See, here's the thing. Faith is not about a promise as much as it's about the one who promised. Faith is about character, not about, not about just words. Right? 1 Peter 2, 24, by his stripes you were healed. You can quote that all day long, and how many have done that? I've done that, and you're, you're still sick as a dog. Right? But, when, but what that promise was supposed to do is connect you to the healer. Right? Because it reveals to me that Jesus is a healer. And I can trust him to heal because that's who he is. That's what he does. So th- this is important to know. People break contracts, but God doesn't break covenants. Let's look at a story. I love this. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. I want you to look at this with me. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Now, this is, this is speaking of, of Abram, who would become Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now I find this interesting. When God was promising promising him a child, when he was way past age, he didn't struggle with this as much as he struggled with this next thing, which is interesting to me. Uh, then the next verse. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. Now listen to this. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? it it's funny to me that this man struggled with the idea of bearing a child after you know the age, but yet when it came to God giving him land, he needed some proof. I just find that interesting. I have no message on that. I just think it's a little bit humorous. You know, and it shows us, you know, have you ever like, I can believe for this big thing, but I struggle with this little thing. All right, it makes me feel better. So, um, but look here, I want you to notice something. Have you ever struggled to believe God for something? Right, we all have, right? And, and let's say God came to you and said, you know, and you said that to God. You know, God gives you this promise, and you say, all right, God, I'm going to need some proof. Some of us would ask to see a you know, fire fall from heaven. Some of us would ask, like, have this uh, blue goat walk by me and say my name or something. You know, we, we would get ridiculous with it. But look here. I want you to notice, notice this. Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Have you ever thought about this? Like, God is speaking to this dude. <laughs> like, God's speaking to this guy. And he says, now how do I know that's going to happen? Like, it, it's just, it's funny. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all, of the, all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Listen to this. This is what I'm saying. Remember, we're talking about how, how covenant is the faith stabilizer. When Abraham needed assurance, God gave him a covenant. 
When Abraham needed proof, God cut a covenant. And it was enough for Abraham. Because Abraham lived in the world of covenants. So let, now let's, 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 let's talk a little bit more about the covenants of the Bible. See, although there, there are many covenants in the Bible, uh, you could say there's an Adamic covenant, covenant made with Adam. You could say there was a covenant made with Noah. Um, I would argue that covenant was mo- really actually made with humanity. But um, you could say there was a covenant made with Noah. Then you got them, but we come to we can break it down in many covenants. Like I said, there's also a covenant between David and Jonathan. Many covenants in the Bible. But we could break it down to into four covenants. There was the um, Abrahamic covenant, which God cut with Abraham. There was the Mosaic covenant, that's what we call the old covenant or the law. There was the Davidic covenant, which is what God cut with David. And then there's the new covenant, which you and I are under through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul, however, in, in Galatians 4, he talks about the two covenants. Right? When Paul read the Bible, he said, really, ultimately, this is just about two covenants. All right. So how does that fit with what I just said? Well, really, it's about four covenants. Because what you're going to find out is, and we also know there's more than one covenant in the old because remember we read in Ephesians 2 where he said belong to the Jews were the covenants, plural, of promise. All right, so, um, but really, here, here's, here's why we can still say it's two covenants. The Mosaic covenant is the old covenant. And that's, that's because this covenant was rendered obsolete by Jesus. He fulfilled it, said it's obsolete, there's no more need for it. All right? But now these other three covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, it laid the groundwork for the new covenant. The blessings that you and I enjoy today are the same blessings that Abraham enjoyed under his covenant. So it's just the Abrahamic covenant is the foundation for the new covenant. And then what about the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant, which God cut with David, it, it's, it's going to be it's fulfilled in the new covenant, but it's going to find its ultimate fulfillment in the future. And what that covenant promised was, you know, that David would never fail to have a man sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And we know that that Jesus came through the the family of David, and he's sitting on the throne. But there's going to be a day. Listen, there's always a spiritual fulfillment and a physical fulfillment. There's going to come a day. The book of Revelation talks about when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord. And Jesus will sit up on a throne in Jerusalem and he will reign in the place of David. All right? And he will be there forever from that point on. So it will have a future fulfillment, even though it has, in a sense, been fulfilled already. So we, we don't have to, we're not going to really fool with the Davidic covenant. So let's, let's, we're going to look at three covenants here for a few minutes. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. So there are three components to a covenant. And, and trust me, guys, this sounds like boring. Whoops. This sounds boring, but uh, I promise you, when you get to understand the new covenant, it just, it just lights a fire for your faith, okay? Um, the three components, the three parts to a covenant, the words, the blood, and the oaths, or the seal. All right? Uh, yeah, the seal. So the, the first part, the words, the promises, and the oaths. So this would include the terms of the covenant, the blessings, the curses, um, what one promised to do, you know, things like that. Then there was the blood of the covenant. All right, A covenant was viewed as being life and death commitment. 
that's why, that's really what blood is about. A blood covenant is saying, okay, if I break this covenant, let what we're doing to this animal happen to me. That's what they were saying. All right, so, so remember how in Abraham, with Abraham, he split, they would literally split these animals down the middle. The person entering this covenant was saying, if I break my end of the covenant, let me be split right down the middle. Let my blood be shat, you know, spread. So listen to this. It was the sacrificial blood that made the covenant official. So once blood was shed, they said the covenant is ratified, the covenant is official. And then there was the seal, which assured the covenant was intact and being enforced. When you see a seal of a covenant, it lets you know that this covenant is still intact. It's still being enforced. It's still good in my life, all right? The Abrahamic covenant. Let's look at this really quick. We're going to go through this kind of quick. The promises, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise. And... When you know the new covenant, it sounds just like this. Because it's God saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Abraham, listen, God put Abraham to sleep while he cut the covenant with himself. That's why that covenant is still in force and it didn't end when Abraham died. Okay, that's why it's still in force because God is the one who cut the covenant. Um, the blood was offered in Genesis 15. But now listen to the seal. Uh, God said to Abram, as for, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And we're going to go somewhere to this, with this with the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant, um, even though we call it the Mosaic covenant, it wasn't cut with Moses like the Abraham's covenant. It was cut with the children of Israel. All right, and, and the words are summed up in Deuteronomy 28. We have the blessings and the cursings. But really, the words can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. The literal rendering of the Ten Commandments is the Ten Words. And listen to this. I think this is what John had in mind when he said, in the beginning was the Word, singular. Because he had just came out of a covenant where there were ten words. There were ten things to keep. But under this new covenant, he was saying there's one word you have to keep. Jesus. Right? So I think that's what he had in mind there. Okay? Um, and we, we, can, we can get into that. But let's look at the seal. Right? Now, the blood we know was detailed in the sacrificial system. The seal was actually the Sabbath day and the feast and holy day. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign or a seal between me and you. All right, now let's look at the new covenant. This is, this is what we want to get to uh, here. The words of this covenant is really the New Testament. All right? But we can find them summed up in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Look here. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And then the blood, I love this. Let's this, Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Whose blood? Now, we say Jesus, and that's right. But here in the book of Acts, it, it calls it the very blood of God. So the, the Mosaic system and the Abrahamic uh, covenant, they were ratified by the blood of animals. This new covenant, has been ratified by the blood of God. God himself shed blood for this covenant that we have. Uh, Listen to the seal. The seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. And you can read about that in Ephesians 1, verse 13 18. So I love this. So the, the seal of the Abrahamic covenant was to do with the body that God created. The seal of the Mosaic covenant was who was concerned with the days that God created. But the seal of the new covenant is God. You see that? The seal of this new covenant is God himself come to dwell inside of you. And in Ephesians 1.13, Paul uses that very word. He says you've been sealed. In other words, this is the proof that the covenant is still intact. This is the proof that the covenant is still being enforced. And I love this. He says, it's just a down payment. In other words, it's not even gotten near as good as it's going to get. Right? This new covenant, it, like, like the proverb says, the path of the just shines brighter and brighter. This new covenant's just going to get better and better. So we're, 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 I'm going to look at two more things and we're going to finish. And I think these things will bless you guys. First, let's look at, we're going to look at two covenant vocabulary words. The first word that I want to look at, and I'm telling you, if you don't pay attention to anything, pay attention to these next two things. The first word I want to talk about is the word hased or hased. People pronounce it different words. I'm just going to say hased. Hased is a Hebrew word that is often translated in the Old Testament as mercy, kindness, loving kindness, goodness, and favor. But now the problem with this is this translation, it often misses the value of this word in Hebrew. It's because this word is so good that our English translators, they can't come up with a word that even comes close to matching it. All right? Um, if, if you want to put an accurate translation on this word has said, then here's what I, this is the way I interpret it. When I read this word has said, you know, and usually it's translated mercy and loving kindness and peace and things like that. When I read that word, I replace it with the covenant faithfulness of God. Because that's what it is. It's not just mercy. It's not, ju- it's not just loving kindness. It's not just kindness. It's not just peace. It's covenant faithfulness. So listen to this. I, I, I made this note here. Hesed is actually the covenant faithfulness of God. We could say Hesed is the working out of a covenant relationship. And listen to this. Hebrews viewed Hesed as the active pursuit of wanting to bless one's covenant partner. So when they seen this word, when they read the Old Testament, they didn't think loving kindness. They didn't think his mercy endures forever. They thought this is, co- this is covenant pursuit. 
This is God actively chasing me, wanting to bless me because he's in covenant with me. Okay? So, and, and, and this is important because I think the, our, our faith teaching has missed this. Hesed is not, the, the Hebrew mind did not view Hesed as an obligation or a duty. And that's the way a lot of faith teaching looks at covenant. Because God's got a covenant with you, he's obligated to do this for you. Right? If, 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 you, if you can just confess it enough, if you can believe hard enough, you know, if you can twist God's arm, he will keep his part of the covenant. All right? That's not the way they viewed it. They didn't look at it as obligation or, desi- or, or, obligation or duty. They viewed it as desire. Okay? I found this. I found this in a source uh, on on Blood Covenant. Uh, this author said, "His said says, I want to do this for my covenant partner." This is what, and then, and then I, I just I made some more notes here. But but look here. His said is rooted in love. Okay, it's rooted in love, and what it teaches us is God is looking for a way to fulfill his end of the covenant. All right? He, 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 and, and think about this. I think it's in First Chronicles. It said the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, wanting to show himself strong on behalf of those, those whose hearts is perfect uh, with him. All right? Well, that was covenant language. That was, God say, that was, that was this, this author saying, hey, God, his eyes are always looking towards his covenant partner. And he's always actively looking for a way he can bless them. You don't have to convince God to bless you. You just have to let God bless you. Right? Look here, and, and, and uh, we're going to look at, I want you to look at this. 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we're going to begin with verse 1. But so in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, David and Jonathan enter into a covenant together. And this covenant is so strong that Jonathan chooses David over his father, Saul. So Saul, now I want you to think about this. So Saul is the king, and Jonathan is the, Saul, uh, is the son of Saul. So who should be the next king after Saul? Jonathan. But Jonathan cuts a covenant with this man who God has ordained to be king, which means his daddy has to get out of the way somehow. And, and in the natural, you would think, Daddy got to be killed, <laughs> right? Daddy's got to go. But David and Jonathan cut this covenant together, and it's that's talked about in First uh, Samuel chapter eighteen, verse three. And so th- this just shows you the power of covenant, where Jonathan chose what was best for him and his father for covenant. He'd rather had covenant than than his own desires. For Okay, look here. So this is, this is after time. Jonathan's dead. Uh, Saul's dead. David is the king. So years later, look here. And, and I'm going to read this out of the New King James, and I'm going to make note when the word said is used because it, it doesn't translate in, in our, our English versions. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? That's said. For Jonathan's sake. So remember, Jonathan's been dead for years. But David says, even though he's dead, 
I still want to, I still want to bless my covenant partner somehow. So he says, you know, is there anyone left of his house? Does he have any children who I can bless? And so this is powerful because, listen, if you have children, they're blessed because of your covenant with God. They are, that, that's, where, that's the language Paul is using. You remember in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's addressing marriage? And he says, you know, hey, listen, if uh, you weren't a believer, your children weren't, wouldn't be sanctified. That means we could just say set apart to take away the re, uh, religious connotations. Your children wouldn't be set apart. Be, because you're a believer, your children are set apart. Why? Because you're in covenant with God. And since you're in covenant with God, all your family are automatically going to receive those blessings. All right? So he said, let me show that I may show his said for Jonathan's sake. And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness has said of God? So let's read it like this. Is there not someone of the house to whom I may show the covenant faithfulness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? That just means, you know, he couldn't walk. He, he, he didn't have the ability to walk. He was paralyzed. Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now, what you learn when you read all this story in, in the books of Samuel is that really what happened was Mephibosheth, he was hid... And what he was probably told all his life was, the reason we have to hide you is because if David ever finds you, you're a dead man. Because you are a, a danger to his throne. You are a danger to his position. Because you're the son of Saul, the grandson of Saul. So if David finds you, he will have no mercy on you. He will kill you, he will slaughter you, he will not care. Uh, he will not even hesitate to do it. That's what Mephibosheth had been taught all his life. So think about when Mephibosheth is in hiding, and here he sees the chariots and the horses coming from David. He thinks, I'm a dead man. This is it. I can't run. Remember, he's paralyzed. I can't run. I can't get out of here. And if there's no one here to defend me, it's over. And who can beat the king's army, right? So look here. He came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness, that's a said, for I will surely show you the covenant faithfulness of God for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Two important things to note here, okay? So I've already mentioned the history. Um, so this is what I want you to learn here. David was nothing like Mephibosheth had been taught to believe all his life. For so many of us, God is nothing like we've been taught that he is all of our life. We have been taught that when God finds you, he will kill you. He will have no mercy on you. You're a dead man. You're a dead woman. It's over. But that is an understanding of God outside of covenant. When you understand covenant and you understand 
that God is the representative of His end. And you and I, we aren't even the representatives on our end. See, it's not a covenant between Grant and God. It's a covenant between God the Father and God the Son. God chose a representative. See, every covenant had to have a representative. And that representative had to be of the same family and bloodline of, those, of the ones he represented. So, all, you know, Acts chapter, I think it's 17, he says, out of one bloodline he's made all men. So God had to become a man and become the covenant representative. Because every other covenant that he cut in the Bible, guess what? Man messed it up. That's why he had to knock Abraham out and put him to sleep. Right, because he's like, his brother's gonna mess it up. Because you know, when he put Abraham to sleep, it says there, you know, he, you know, God, they they cut the animals in two, and then some some uh, ravens came and were trying to, you know, eat them, and and Abraham shoot them away. Right, <laughs> that's when God put him to sleep. Because God's like, if I keep this brother awake, he's gonna mess this up. Right, so God knocked him out. God gave him the anesthesia, knocked him out. Right, put him to sleep. So so. God is better than you can imagine. So God had to choose a representative. He chose himself. God had to be born a man, and that God-man is our representative. He is our end of the covenant. So, so all we are is we're just in him. See, that's covenant vocabulary. We don't realize this. In him, in whom, that's covenant language. Because, when, because it was said... When someone made a covenant with someone else, for example, here, Mephibosheth. David looked at it as Mephibosheth was in Jonathan when they cut the covenant. All right? And, and, and so, since he was in Jonathan, even though he wasn't there when the covenant was cut, the covenant's with him. Do you remember where it says here in, in Hebrews, it says that, that Levi, in a sense, paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was in Abraham. Yeah, yeah. Levi was not Abraham's son. So if we're talking anatomy, uh, Levi was not in Abraham. Not physically. right? So that's, that's not what that's referring to, but that's the way it's often read. He's referring to the bloodline. He was in him. So he's saying when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi got some of that blessing because he was in Abraham. All right, so you and I, when the Apostle Paul in his letters talks about how we are in him, we are in Christ, we are in whom, he's saying because of what your covenant representative has done, you're blessed. All right? And so this is, and then I, I, I want to make this point. So God was better, David was better than Mephibosheth ever believed. God is better than we could have ever believed. And there was, I love this part, there's, Notice in that story, it kept mentioning that Mephibosheth was lame in his feet. It mentions it three or four times. What's the point? There was nothing Mephibosheth could have added to David. He added nothing to David. Somebody had to pack him. Somebody had to carry him. Somebody had to take care of him. Someone had to bath him. Someone, you know, he could probably feed himself, but someone had to get him to the table. All right? So there was, there was no, Mephibosheth held no value in a sense to David. There's nothing you and I can add to our covenant with God. Nothing. We're lame in our feet. There's absolutely nothing for you and I. We, we add no value to him in and of ourselves. Now does he place value upon us? Yes, just like David placed value upon Mephibosheth. 
And listen here, one more thing about this word hased. Remember how we're talking about this, this, this new covenant is the everlasting covenant? Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy, has said, endures forever. His covenant faithfulness endures forever. There's no doing away with it. God's covenant faithfulness never ends. That same covenant faithfulness that is available for you today will be available for you tomorrow. It'll be available for you in a year. It'll be available for you on your, you know, if, if the Lord doesn't, doesn't tarry, it, it'll be available for you on your deathbed. It'll va- be available for you when you cross over. Ten million years from now, that covenant faithfulness will still be available. There is no ending to it. So the psalmist was literally crying, his covenant faithfulness endures forever. And he says this so many times in the Psalms. His mercy endures forever. And we just say it thinking mercy means, you know, he's not going to give them what they deserve. No, it's saying he will keep his covenant with us forever. There's one more word I want to look at, and then we're going to finish. Uh, We're going to look at, and I I want you to go look at this with me. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, because this is powerful, and this will be the last verse we use. The last covenant word I want to look at is friend. Because here's the thing, we're much more loose when we use the word friend than the Bible is. Um, You know, we can barely know someone. You know, there's people that, man, I haven't seen, you know, in 20 years. And there's a lot of people like on Facebook, I've never met them. It feels like I've met them, you know, that's just the way social media is. But biblically speaking, they can't be my friend. (laughs) Right? Because we're talking about, and I'm talking about not in the context of the New Covenant, but I'm talking about... In, in, in the Eastern culture where they cut covenants with one another. Um, we're just really loose with that term. So when we read friend in the Bible, it loses its power for us. And we just think of friend like, you know, me and Brian's going to hang out. All right, so we just think, oh, it's just two people that like to hang out together. All right? But in the Bible, a friend is someone you are in covenant with. This is why, you know, and if you notice in the Bible, when two people would sit down and share a meal together, that was special because that was covenant, all right? Um, So in the Bible, if there is no covenant, there is no friendship, okay? So so do you know in James, and I think in Isaiah as well, it talks about how Abraham is the friend of God. We just think, oh, look, how many times God came down and talked to Abraham. No, it's look how God cut a covenant with Abraham. If you'll notice in the King James, I don't know about the New King James or any more modern translations, but in the King James, in James chapter 2, when it says he's the friend of God, it's capitalized. Friend is capitalized. It's because they even understood, even when they were translating King James, that this is something more than just your buddy. This is your covenant partner. See, and in the Bible, these types of friendships don't end. We just read that about David and Jonathan. Like when we read the story, we just see them, you know, as two guys who, <laughs> who just like to hang out, you know. But no, they had cut a covenant with one another. So even when one had passed, the other one was looking for a way to bless his friend. So look here, this, this story right here we're going to talk about, this shows you the power of being a covenant friend. And while he was still speaking, so this is after Jesus has just prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed. 
And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Look here. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. What had just happened? Right before this, they, they, had, they had took uh, communion together. Communion is really covenant meal. That's what it is. It's the covenant meal. It was the last part of cutting a covenant. The very last thing they would do is, and that's why like, uh, after we have a wedding, we eat. We eat together. That, that's where it came from, covenant, because marriage is viewed as a covenant. So they had just had their covenant meal together. The covenant was finished. And here Judas comes and kisses him, betraying him. And Jesus looks at him and says, friend. He didn't call him betrayer. He didn't call him enemy. He didn't call him, you know, like he had called the Pharisees and the Sadducees so many times, sons of the devil. He said, friend. He was saying covenant partner. And here's why this is powerful, because even in our disobedience, even in our unfaithfulness, He still calls us friend. Because His covenant faithfulness never ends. None of us have done what Judas did to Jesus. Judas is the very reason Jesus was crucified. Judas is the very reason that all these things happened to this man, that you know, all of our sins, all of the world's sins for thousands of years came upon this man because his covenant friend betrayed him. Now, you think about that, put yourself in those shoes, and be honest, and I think we would have probably called him some different words other than friend. Right? So, but here, he calls Judas his friend. God's covenant faithfulness never ends. And that's all made possible because of blood. So when you take blood out of Christianity, you are taking out the very faithfulness of God. You are taking... When you remove the blood, you remove the assurance of your salvation. There is no assurance of your salvation without blood. When you remove the blood, you remove the why of His grace. When you remove the blood, you remove the confidence of your faith. When you remove the blood, you remove the yes to His promises. When you remove the blood, you remove the hope of heaven. Because do you know where Jesus' blood is today? It's in heaven. When Jesus, see, we, we think that when, when Jesus, uh, you know, resurrected, well, for one, we think that when Jesus died, he went to heaven. But remember, when he resurrected, he said, Mary, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to my Father. So he hadn't been with the Father. All right, and that's another subject for another day. So then he says, he tells her, hey, you know, go tell the guys I'm about to meet them. And then when we see him go meet the rest of the disciples, they can touch him. He says, look, hey, touch my hands, touch my side. All right? What changed? That tells us somewhere in between that. And the book of Hebrews gives us a look at this. He literally ascended to heaven in between that time. 
and presented his blood in heaven. He put it upon the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. He put it upon the heavenly ark of the covenant. And I believe, listen, now the difference in the earthly one and the heavenly one, and we're going to see it one day. There's not going to be a veil there. We're going to be, I think we're going to have the right to literally just, hey, I want to check out the temple. I want to check out the heavenly temple. And we're going to be able to walk in. There's not going to be a veil like there was under the old covenant. That's why it was ripped. And we're going to be able to look and see that blood, the blood of God that was shed for us. So if you remove the blood, because that, that blood, and we don't understand it. Jeremiah shared some on it last week. Something had that, the heavens itself had to be cleansed with the blood of God. And, and there's a mystery there. But when you remove the blood, you and I, when it comes to heaven, we ain't getting in. Right? But when you, when you have the blood, you've got the why of His grace. You've got the assurance of your salvation. You've got the confidence for your faith. You've got the yes to His promises. And you've got the hope of heaven. So just remember that. Without the covenant, without the blood, you have no covenant. Without the covenant, you have no God. But here's the difference in us and that is we are a people who believe in the blood. And since we are a people who believe in the blood, we are a people that have a covenant with God. And because we are a people who have a covenant with God, we are a people that are assured His goodness forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? Has this blessed you guys? All right, Jeremiah. Hallelujah. Do you guys see how important that is now? And... um. It's, it's so, you know, we live in a culture that when something is remotely offensive, we just want to, you know, and that we don't understand, we just want to cancel it and remove it. And so I think that people, out of a desire to preserve what they think is the goodness of God, have tried to remove the concept of the necessity for a blood sacrifice, and, and uh, I, I don't think, you know, many times I don't think these are necessarily bad people. I just think these are people who've been hurt and been offended by religion. And as a result of that, they think, well, how can a good God require a blood sacrifice? How, why is that important to God? But the reality is, is there, there's something so powerful about blood that we don't understand that God does understand. And God says, I had to spill my blood to save you. I had to spill my blood to cleanse the heavenlies. I had to spill my blood to right the wrongs. I don't require your blood. I spilled my blood. And so because we live in, in a culture that, it, you know, if you're, you're offended, it's, I mean, no, there's an offense to the cross. You can't get rid of it, man. I know it's, a, it's an offensive concept, um, but we can't, let, we can't get rid of it because there's, there's, there's power in the blood of Jesus. We can't, you know, we can't, through intellectualism and through philosophy, uh, tried to, to rob the power of, of Jesus' sacrifice. And, and I also understand that, you know, the, you know, the words and stuff in terms of like covenant and, you know, New Testament, Old Testament, covenant. The word testament means covenant. So the very book, you know, that, he's, he, that Grant so well expounded, it's a book of covenant. And, and I mean, we live in a society that doesn't honor covenant at all. Like, hey, you don't, you don't like somebody? Move on. 
You know, how many know that even the concept of marriage is under attack in our society because they're thinking, well, why do I need to get married? I don't have to get married. You know, I'll just, I'll just, you know, they, you know, they have all these terms, you know, polyamorous and, and, uh, you know, you just, you, you have these, you know, open relationships and you're with whoever you want to with whenever you want to be with them. And there's just no, no concept of honor and integrity and covenant and agreement. The reason lawyers are so rich is we're a culture that doesn't understand covenant because we, we, and we have contracts and things of that nature and lawyers pour over contracts to find a, a loophole in the, in the covenant, in the contract in order to find a way to break it. And so this concept of covenant is really a forgotten thing in, in our world. Um, but, it, 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 the, but what created this world, covenant came from that place, from heaven. And so covenant is big and strong in God's heart and it's more than just a legal contract. See, the reason God gave us a covenant, because we talk more about love than we talk about covenant. The reason God gave us a covenant is because he loves us. And he wants us to be confident that he's going to be there for us. Are y'all tracking me here? See, I loved Stacy before we cut covenant together. Before we got married. I loved her. And I thought, this is who... I want to spend the rest of my life with. And my love for her caused me to desire to present a covenant to her. So the reason God gave you a covenant is because he loves you. And he wants you to be confident in something greater than just a feeling or an emotion. Can I get an amen? You know, Stacey that we love each other, but we have days where we don't like each other. Like we don't like the way we act. I mean, it's just human beings. Like, I love my kids dearly, but there are times when they do things I don't like. All you guys, I love y'all, but there are times y'all get on my nerves too, you know what I'm saying? There's times when I bug myself, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to be around me. And, and so, a covenant is stronger than emotion. It's stronger than um, an intellectual argument. A covenant, and, and what Grant has shown us, that it's something that's based on life and death something very powerful in it, and, and we can't let it go. And this is something that kept coming to me while you were preaching. Even Think about the way we're designed physically. How I many you know, ideally, when a man and woman come together and get married, they're both virgins, right? And the covenant is not consummated until they have sex. What is the consummation of the covenant? How I many you know when a woman is a virgin, she has something called a hymen, I'm saying that right? When I look at you, I don't know. <laughs> I should look at somebody else. No, it's a hymen. It's not a hymen. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Sorry, man. Forgive me, brother. Hey, Amen. Anyway, but it's, it, it, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Amen. Anyway, please let me finish. This is important because there, there's, there's a piece of skin that is there in, in, a, in a virgin, that when, that when the man and the woman have sex, that hymen is broken and blood flows. What is that doing? It's consummating the covenant. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a mean thing. It's not a bad thing. It's saying that this covenant is based in blood. So even the way you're, we're designed physically is for the purpose of representing covenant. It's the way God designed it. just kept coming to me when you were preaching. 
God is a covenant God. And he is a, you know, he's not some, some lawyer with a legal contract. No, out of a place of love, he gave us something powerful, something that we could trust in, something that was based upon life itself. And Scripture says that the life is in the blood. And so when people are making, are, are trying to turn, are trying to remove the blood from our Christianity, it's a big deal. It's not a small thing. It's a big thing. And it is the way of Cain, which I talked about last week. It's saying that there's no need for a sacrifice. There's no recognition of sin. And uh, we, can, we can just, there's no need for it. And, and like Grant was sharing, it really turns the blood of Jesus into a common thing. And we can't have that. We have to take a stand against that. Now, I w- can we pass out communion? Because I feel unction to do that too. And it's right there in the back. And, and because this, when we take communion, that's what we're doing. We're recognizing the covenant that was made for us. Amen? And every time we take communion, that's what we're doing. We're recognizing the blood. We're recognizing uh, the body of Jesus. And we're actually honoring um, his, his sacrifice. You know, again, God did not demand a sacrifice. God gave himself as a sacrifice. And every time we take communion, and if you, those of you that are watching online, get some communion out. You know, you can get a cracker, you can get a wafer, you can get a potato chip, you can get whatever you want to because the issue is not what it is, the issue is what it represents. But every time you take communion, you honor that blood covenant. You honor it and you recognize it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. If you guys watching at home, feel free to get your elements together. We're just going to take communion together. We're going to recognize the power of it because it's about a blood covenant. It's about the sacrifice that the Lord made. And it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. How many of y'all want to honor the blood of Jesus? Amen? I mean, that's what the gospel actually does. It honors the sacrifice, and it says what Jesus did was success. Amen. Well, let's lift up a breath. Father, we, just, we thank you for the understanding of the covenant that you've given to us, Lord. We thank you for for the sacrifice that you made. And Lord, we, 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 we thank you that we are in that covenant, Lord. We thank you for, for the realities that we have. And Lord, at the end of the day, it's because of how much you love us. And Lord, we thank you for that. So Jesus, we honor you. We thank you that your body was broken for us. We recognize that. Lord, we thank you that there is healing in the children's breath. Thank you, Lord. Father, we lift up this cup and we recognize that we don't have a bloodless gospel, but we have good news that was based upon the sure, finished work of the cross. Lord, we thank you for the blood that you shed to cleanse us from all sin. Lord, we honor you. We take it, Lord, as a forgiven people. 
We thank you for the covenant that we have. Help us to understand this covenant so that we can grow in confidence and we can trust that we know that you're going to be there for us all the time. We thank you for this everlasting covenant. We partake now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for, for the covenant that you've given. I speak a blessing over your people. And Lord, we just thank you for this understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. If you need to give an out this morning, lift your hand up. We'll get one to you. Those of you watching online, uh, just want to say thank you to everyone that partners with us in giving. We're, we're grateful and we're thankful. You will never be coerced to give here. Uh, you'll just be invited to. And the Spirit of God... Um, he leads us to, to, to help each other and take care of each other and partner with each other. You know, God gives uh, some, you know, a portion of what comes into your life is bread. It's something that you eat. A portion of what comes into your life is seed. That's something that you give. And ultimately, that's between you and the Lord. But if you allow God to be a part of your finances, he'll show you what seed. And he'll, generally speaking, he's going to take that seed to bless people. He's going he's to encourage you to take that seed and bless ministries that bless you. You know, when a ministry comes and gives of themselves, you know, our reciprocation is to bless. Um, and then he's also going to take that seed and he's going to use it to help people around you. But everything that comes in your life isn't just for you to eat. There's a portion of it that's to give and there's a portion of it to eat. But ultimately, that's between you and the Lord. Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege uh, to give into your kingdom. We ask you to bless this offering in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're done online. Then I just have a couple things I want to talk about here real quick. In closing, where are all those flyers at that we have? Do you have them? Can you hand, me, hand them to me, please? We're going to do a worship night um, here at the church, October 2nd, which will be on a Friday.